0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Fintech Insider Interviews. I'm Sam Maul. It's Lord, at this point, if you don't know that, why are you watching this? Uh, today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Matt Burton. Matt is now a partner at QED Ventures. Every time I meet Matt, it's a different company. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not joking. That last time we were in the fashion district at a, at, at when you had Orchard, and it seems like every time I come, it's a new company, so good for you. Yeah, well, Fintech moves quickly. Yes, it does. <laughs> All right, let's, let's start off talking about you just a little bit. Um, your, your career has been unbelievable, I think. It, 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 your career really, to me, reflects fintech in the way it is today. I'm a, I mean that in a nice way, yeah. right? There's, there's a good analogy there because it's moved incredibly fast. You've seen a lot. You've touched a couple of different spaces there. So it's really been an interesting career. Three-time exit, is that right? Three exits now?
1: Yeah, so exits to Google, Facebook, and now Cabbage.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry,
1: man. It's hard when you can't be <laughs> successful. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, a lot of it is just, you know, being at the right place at the right time with yeah, with, with, uh, with a good team, and so I think uh, the the trend of all three was I was working with people that I knew Yeah. every time, and so it's like every step forward was always through somebody else who said, hey, you know, this is an interesting, you know, area, this is starting to change a ton, why don't you check it out, you know, and so... Without those little nudges, uh, none of it would have happened. It, it really is. It's it's right place, right people,
0: right time, right? It's the combination of those. Exactly. Uh, but right before we started, we were talking about just the, even the team at Orchard, how like almost every single person in that management team is is a CEO now of another or a founder of yet another startup. So the success there, it just shows, right?
1: Yeah. Well, it was interesting. We, we had a happy hour and kind of brought the crew back together. And it was really funny because it was just... I'm like the only non-CEO now. <laughs> you know? They're all like, dude, I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're like, <Yeah>. you
0: pay. <laughs> You should have done like the PayPal Mafia thing, right? The Orchard Mafia. We all stand around and do that. Don't do that. Damn. Well, yeah. So obnoxious.
1: At, at some point, we, we definitely need to, to, you know, just document a little bit of kind of where they went, you know, because that would it, be. it, it is, uh, it continues to amaze me. I continue to get emails from people that are like, you know, they're just continuing to take kind of the next step. And it's, uh, it's really exciting to see. So, so for
0: our listeners and watchers, can you kind of walk through those different companies? And those exits if you don't mind so you can get a good overview of your career
1: yeah so uh, i started my career um in the advertising technology space so so basically kind of right out of college that was an area that was just changing very rapidly Big media corporations were trying to deal with the fact that digital was really starting to become a bigger and bigger portion of their revenue. And because of the nature of digital, it was a really hard channel for them to deal with. They were used to upfronts where once a year I got to sell all my advertising and bring all my money. And moving to to digital was terrifying because they had no idea how many people were going to actually come to their site, how many sessions there would be, or even how to pre-sell that. Mm. And so um, basically all the companies that I worked in were helping publishers in varying ways deal with that. Um, so kind of most notably, you know, AdMeld was, uh, you know, really started with the idea that publishers needed to figure out how to monetize traffic spikes. And so it became kind of the largest or second largest behind Google uh, advertising exchange uh, on the display side. And that was great because I was with a team that, you know, I was one of the first employees and I got to see it all the way through and I got to work in tons of different uh, roles. And, you know, then uh, Google ended up buying that company. I stayed on at Google and then at Google, um, a bunch of myself and uh, former admeld colleagues realized that Google was falling behind in video. Uh, for a lot of structural and political reasons that we could do an entire episode on. Oh, yeah. But that's where we decided to go to a company called LiveRail that was in the video space, which was the first, uh, one of the only independents out there. And I thought we would sell it back to Google. You know, I thought this was going to be a yeah. round trip. Um, and it turned out to actually uh, sell to Facebook and become a core part of their uh, advertising.
0: Just in those two, think about that right place, right time, right? And I think it's being able to see around the curve just a little bit. Yeah. Because you did, right? When, we, when you're like, you talked about how the ad space was changing so much and the same with video which now we're like well of course right everything's
1: video now it's obvious yeah know? now it's yeah it's it like was, voice right <laughs> yeah. obviously you know everyone will have this in their home you're like yeah whatever you know exactly and then you know towards the end of working at LiveRail I had kind of stumbled across peer to peer lending um, and <laughs> As one does in video. <laughs> yeah, well, it Obviously. was it was actually through a friend, you know. It said, yeah. hey, you should probably check this out. And so I put some of my own money in and I started buying and, uh, so, you know, and, and optimizing my own strategy for acquiring uh, loans. This is like... What people don't realize is the word fintech is actually new, right, yeah. relatively. Yeah. Like back then, there was no such thing as the word fintech. It was all you know, very category-based. You, know, you were either payments or you were a peer-to-peer lender or a peer-to-peer uh, money transfer, right? right? There was no kind of umbrella. Um, but anyway, what, what fascinated me was the growth rates. I started to like, you know, unpeel the onion and I was like, wow, this thing is growing really, really quickly. And like these non-bank lenders are, you know, something's going on. And so that's really where the pull came from. Um, And then I ended up starting uh, uh, basically a happy hour, a meetup to see if anybody else was interested in it. And that's where the whole thing kind of took off and Orchard was started. Um, So... You know, I'd like to say that I very carefully planned my whole career, but that was not the case. You know, it was just kind of organically, you know, through the network, bringing more and more opportunities. Initially, we thought we were gonna build tools for retail. Like, like ourselves, like yeah. Angela and I were working on. Um, but quickly we realized all of a sudden these hedge funds and private equity firms and banks were really trying to get into it. And they are you know were already paying us consulting fees. And we said, well, maybe that's a, a better approach. And so um, that's kind of how I stumbled into FinTech. Um, and, so, and so Orchard, the last time we, we talked, um, it was a couple of
0: years now, which is interesting, two or three years ago. Um, it was interesting because you were, you were going almost through hyper growth, the, the team you were building. I think you were, if you remember right, you told me like half the team was coming out of the banks and half of the team was just coming out of tech, which is so broad
1: speaking. But you were able to form an incredibly talented team there. Yeah, it was exactly as you say. Like I came from the ad tech space. But yeah. We were pulling in people from other kind of uh, categories that were used. The thing is, is that you have to be really um, comfortable with everything changing. Right, like what you were working on like a couple months Bankers ago. Anchors love that by <laughs> the way. Just saying if you didn't know that, yeah. they love things changing constantly. And so so you want that DNA, but you also want to like put it together with People with subject matter expertise, yeah. right? And so that seemed to be kind of the combination of the two that was, was really kind of working for us. Um, and it's been amazing. Be- and I think one of the major trends that has gone on is, is that at that period of time when we were talking, all these companies were very large, right? You know, SoFi and Lending yeah. Club, and Pro- hundreds and hundreds of employees. Orchard was very, very large. The next group of fintechs that I, you know, I've been working with, they're doing the exact same thing but with a fraction of the people. It's just absolutely amazing. You know, you see you know, some of these apps with millions of customers and they have a team of 20. You that's, know, that's it's
0: indicative
1: of the one, the pace of tech,
0: and I mean, I mean they give the example all the time of Kodak, Kevin, I don't remember how many employees at the time Instagram yeah. came out which had like, you know, small, small nothing. Team. Right. But then you watch the valuation shift and, and how how efficiently you can operate. It makes sense that that's starting to happen now more and more within the industry. Yeah. So so the so Orchard, um, another uh, successful um, move with that company going to Cabbage, a company we love at 11FS. Have been yeah. great to us. Um, so um, I know you still have got a lot of the team working with Rob and Kath at
1: Cabbage. Um, it seems like culturally that'd be a good mix for you guys. Yeah, it was nice because they were a client of ours for a right. long time. And we actually got to know them. And, you know, when we started out the business mainly focused on institutional investors, kind of as the business changed over time, we started to build out more and more software for originators. And so when you towards the end, when we were actually selling the business, it was like, okay, well, who's actually going to use what we've built to the furthest extent you know yeah. and and cabbage was right on kind of the bleeding edge of, of using a lot of those tools um and you know i think it just made a lot of sense right because uh you know while while cabbage you know gets kind of lumped in with a lot of kind of the traditional fintechs their culture is very different you it, know cabbage is the real deal
0: i yeah. mean you go to their office in atlanta and i mean it's Several hundred folks, right? I mean, it's it's the real day. and they're just not in Atlanta, right? They're yeah. A footprint, a global.
1: They have a global footprint. footprint, but they have a very kind of unique culture, right? Which, which we, <laughs> which you know, and I say that in a positive. No, I way, agree. Right? It's I not. Agree. It's and and so because of that, you know, it was something that we we felt very comfortable with, right? Yeah. We knew because the thing about acquisitions is like the, the sad truth is most of them fail, yeah, and they fail because the cultures don't mix in a good way. And so, you know, I, I think that in my conversations with Catherine and Rob, as we were going through that process, it was really, you know, how do we make this successful from a cultural standpoint? And a big part of it, too, is they really wanted to build out their New York presence. You know, yeah. they did not have a big footprint here. And so not only was there a lot of synergies on the technology side and, and us being able to say, look, we're going to take your roadmap and we're going to move it 12, 18 months in advance, like overnight. Yeah. But it was also like, look, and, and, and now you're going to have a big footprint in New York City, which was strategically important for Rob. You know that's a really good point. The day that we're recording this,
0: folks, um, news came out that the founder of Fidor is exiting. Right again, large bank in France got the company, and he he flat out said it was it was a difference of a little bit difference of a culture and where to take the company. And you're right, the majority of the time there is this exit where those founders do leave. And I think when you find the right acquisition plays where they go, you see a bit more longevity. You know, and, and again, it's not that it's a bad thing, right? It's just
1: part of the business. I think you just got to plan ahead. You know, when you're looking for that kind of right exit partner, I mean look, I mean, startups, you know, they only have three results, right? You're either shutting down, you're selling the business, or you're going public. Right? Sorry, folks, that's it. <laughs> and uh, by the way, that first one is the majority of what happens for a lot of companies. Mean, reality. Of, yeah, I mean, that's just what happens. And so, and not that many go public, yeah. right? And so a lot of people end up, right, thinking a lot about that, you know, acquisition path. And, you know, it's, it's helpful to, to, to really spend time on it, right? It's not just, you know, the client base you've built or the tech product that you've built. It's, it's a, you know, in a lot of business, it's about people, right? Yeah. And, and so it's just making sure that there's a good fit there, you know? So
0: you also have this, um, this thing that kind of follows your life, this three times thing. So he's a three-time Texas state champion in tennis. I keep coming <laughs> back to that because I can't let that go. Three times. <laughs> big Texas is like a country, Laura. It's <laughs> massive. Don't laugh at that. <laughs> yeah. Three times played tennis in college at Tennessee somewhere.
1: Yeah, so at the University of the South and baseline, so, uh, or did you go to the net? No, as tall I, as you I, are, I was an I was a net player. So had it's, to um, be. Yeah, no, I mean uh, it was. Well, the way I say it is kind of my first passion was tennis. And so, yeah. like, you know, all through kind of my my youth and, and through college, you know, very active in tennis. And then kind of the same intellectual challenges that come with tennis, which, you know, it's 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 very much a one-on-one sport. And it's, yeah. most of it's about figuring out your opponent's weakness and being able to, like, really analyze that um, and, and then adapt your game to that. And I find that like startups are very similar, right? It's like you're you're trying to figure out a new place in the value chain and it's constantly evolving because it's not clear. And intellectually, it's very, very difficult. And so, um, and there's just constant feedback loop, you know, yeah. it's just, there's so much that comes back to you so quickly. It's like, you know, in the same way that you're just like holding right on to the electrical wire. Like there's just, there's nothing, you know, in big companies, there's nice padding. So you don't actually feel any of the the stress of finding a new place in the world as a company. But as a startup, you're just right on. I love that. Holding metal. on to the wire.
0: Another <laughs> friend of mine, Dan Kimmerling, who had a, a startup,
1: yeah. um, gave
0: he said this on stage with me one time. Being a startup founder, you have to have the ability to chew glass and like it. And I thought, that sounds awful. <laughs> And then I joined 11FS and I'm like, "Oh, I get it." Yeah. It's, I it's
1: this isn't easy, right? I mean, you've got to be able to yeah, well, to plow through. Yeah, and it, it has to be something that that you're you're really passionate about and you find challenging and you enjoy the challenge there you go I, I think that that's yeah. like that summarizes both of it is is that you have to enjoy how hard it is because if you don't do that it's not a good career path right there are much easier ways to make money um, and and that's so I, I think that uh but I mean it's for a lot of the people I know, they couldn't do anything different. You know, this is, this is the only way they know. So this is a great segue for me to get
0: back into the questions that yeah. Laura wrote. <laughs> <laughs> because I drifted way over here. Um, but it does tie in as perfect. It's what, a, what was it about lending that really caught your interest? Because, again, you were we kind of touched on this. You had a friend kind of introduce you yeah. to the space. But, but um, going back to what you talked about in tennis, rated right? think on your feet. So when you started looking at lending, what
1: really caught your eye about it? So I think the the biggest thing in the lending space that that attracted me was when I started to do a little bit of research on just what portion of the global economy is financial services and within financial services which are the big categories and lending is one of the biggest and so you know I I had seen the impact of what happens when an industry changes like advertising yeah and and then extrapolated that out to say well you know lending is multiples the size, you know, and so this is gonna have a huge impact. And, and the other piece too was, you know, it, it had never, the banking system had never really made sense to me. You know, it's like walking around New York City and just seeing all the bank branches and all the prime real estate had just, I was like, this is just gonna change at some point, you know? And so it's tough to predict exactly when the, when the changes happen. And I think, you know, a lot of the, what I would say the first generation FinTechs um, the, the Prospers and SoFi's and Lending Clubs and ondex of the World, you know, they didn't achieve kind of the lofty uh, vision that many of them had. But it's been interesting to see that, this, that the second generation of fintechs are all noticing where they yeah. fell short or how, you know, things, and adapt it in a way that, like, you know, Chime is, like, growing like crazy. Yeah, 3 know? million plus now is what they're saying, right? And And I think it's just the very beginning, right? And yeah, so... You know, it's, it, I just knew that it was going to be a space that was just never going to be boring, you know. And so, you know, I've always been drawn to spaces that are changing rapidly because, you know, having uh, experience actually works against you. So if you've been working in an industry for 20 years and it's been stable and then all of a sudden it starts to change rapidly, you're actually at a disadvantage to somebody who's brand new and knows nothing. Right. And so you bring their bias with you. Right. Correct. You bring and it's historical like a bias. Yeah. It, and it, it and it, it. I love spaces where it's like the faster I can figure it out, the more edge I have, you know, and it, we're all starting from kind of zero because it's you know so much has shifted and changed. And that can be con- consumer behavior shifting. That can be regulatory shifting. That can be a number of kind of ways that it does but I, I, I like very volatile spaces. I like spaces that no one really knows what's going on. So
0: let's talk about that space because now you're a QED on the venture side, which yeah. I love. Um, you had this quote, you described it as a boutique lender. I like the boutique yeah. part. Of it. We consider ourselves a kind of a boutique uh, challenger consultancy firm. So, yes. so what do you mean by that? What does that mean?
1: Um, I mean, well, the line that Nigel uses a lot is you know, that we are uh, operators masquerading as VCs. You know, and so it's it's we're operators with a very specific background, i.e. everyone at QED has been in, within the fintech space and or run p you know, at, at innovative companies like Cap One, And we have a kind of a, a very diverse background. So like my specialty at, at QED is capital markets. So, given that there's a lot of lenders in the portfolio, um, I'm helping a lot of them with debt and equity um, raises. Um, for example, you know Amias, who I spent this morning with, he spent eight years at Treasury. You know, and so anything that touches regulatory or selling into banks or everything touches regulatory, (laughs) (laughs) but like he's, he's the resource. Right. And so, um, you know, and, and, you know, if you, if you're looking at, you know, um, you know, optimizing or or looking at the funnel of any of of these lenders and trying to understand kind of the unit economics, Frank is like the you know, amazing, yeah. right? And so, you know, it's 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 a it's it's a very interesting place because you know, the, the, the fund is, is, is quite large now uh, in terms of number of investments, and it has invested in Europe and the U.S. And, and the Latin America, where I've been spending most of my time. It's just a fascinating place. Okay, you're just making me spin off the, the questions. <laughs> Let's talk about Latin America, because I find that interesting. Um, can you give
0: me a couple examples? Of what's going on specifically there? maybe some of the companies you're looking at?
1: Yeah, so so the, the, I think the portfolio is now 12 or 13 um, in Latin companies America? in Latin America. Wow, okay. Um, yeah, so we, we actually have a dedicated fund um, in, in that area. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it, it's everything from, you know, KORU, who is the easiest way to think of them as kind of a lending tree slash credit karma type play. Okay. So they're, they're kind of that front-end marketing uh, kind of piece to it as well. Right. Um, to you know, uh, you know large uh, kind of lenders in in kind of each geographic region, so we typically have you know one consumer lender one small business lender etc um, so it's more than this micro loans which everyone seems to
0: only talk about from Latin oh, no, America. No, no. the yeah. reality
1: is the ecosystems there oh the ecosystem's there i mean it's it's less developed in the US but what's so amazing about it is For is that yeah, but it's, the growth rates are amazing, right? So it's like if you're growing at 2x, like doubling year over year. In the U.S., like everyone will fund you, rah, 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 rah. That's like a failure in LATAM, right? Like these companies are growing at four to five times, year over year, multiple years in a row. Um, and I think it's just because there's two things happening. There's one, um, there's not as much startup competition, so when you're in, you know, Europe or you're here in the U.S., if there's a good idea, there's three different startups that get funded. Right. And so they're having to not only compete with the incumbents, but they're also having to compete with each other. That just doesn't happen in Latin. You know, it's very much them versus the incumbents is the only. And the incumbents on a lot of the, in, in both Mexico and Brazil, the two major countries, have a very concentrated banking yeah. System, and so because of that, there uh, there's even more opportunity to grow. So like Newbank is one of the investments. I was going to go yeah. there, so, but uh, ex bankers. Yes. By the way, I love that. Sounds familiar. Maybe yeah. Like some other company. I know for sure. And and the what's amazing about New Bank is, is that they have really grown virally. You yeah. know, it's it's just they've taken off like a rocket. You know, and they have such a better product. You know, uh, you know another one that that I've been very involved with is Menu. Um, which is really you know, solving this issue of accessing earned wages. So there's about 60,000 people in Mexico every month that are going from the informal economy to the formal economy that were being paid in cash daily or at worst weekly to all of a sudden having to get used to paid every other week or monthly. And so this obviously creates a bunch of cash crunches for them. And so what they're able to do is sell as an employee benefit the ability for these earners to actually not only see how much they're accruing each day, but if they want to withdraw it, they can for an ATM fee. It's a really powerful model, you know, and so, you know, the. Um that whole region, I'm just very, very bullish on in general. And I mean, SoftBank just announced a, you know, a th- yeah, massive five billion dollar yeah. fund for it. Does SoftBank ever announce anything small? What's small to SoftBank?
0: Yeah. Know, two billion, three billion. It's incredible. But it, but it's, what happens it's, there. it's
1: it's amazing to think that that they they have done the analysis and said there is investments. Where we can put five billion to work. I mean, yeah. that is just a, a, a huge change for Latin America. So, for for you at QED,
0: when, when you look at a company, what what are some of the attributes you're looking for to go? Yeah, that's a winner. I mean, obviously, you look at the market, like we talked about. Yeah, you know, four or five times growth is nice. That yeah. works really well. It's lo- again, looking you make around the curve, of
1: mistakes and be okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a little bit. You get a cushion. But when you start looking individually at a company. What are you looking at? Are you looking
1: at the people? Or are you looking at a mix of the people, the product, the what yeah, is it? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think that, that each partner has a slightly different way that they evaluate. Depends on what stage they're they're investing in. Yeah. I mean, for me, and I think for many of the partners at QD, like the team is the most important piece, right? Because this is a long term relationship. Um, you know, because we're operators, you know, we are very committed to the businesses. And so like many VCs, if things don't go well, if you miss your first numbers, they'll just stop showing up to board meetings. At QED, we can't do that, right? We have the DNA of like, we're used to the fact that if something's not working, we want to lean in even more. And so because of that tendency, we have to make sure that we want to spend a lot of time with with these operators um, and 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 these fintech leaders. And so that's kind kind of number one. Number 2 that QED really cares about, which you know sometimes we miss opportunities because of this is really good unit economics. And so, you know, I think if you look at our portfolio, you know, we don't have any of the robo advisors in it because we couldn't figure out the unit economics. We don't have somebody like Robinhood in it because we couldn't figure out the unit economics. It is important for us for you to have a path to how you're going to make money. Yeah, it's it's
0: one thing I love you, Chime. So don't get me wrong. don't get mad at me, right? <laughs> I, again, don't get mad at me because we do love you guys. Um, but as an example, right, and there's many others where you do see massive numbers, you know, right? You're seeing the customers come on, yeah. But then you come back to business model revenue, right? The unit economics, and you come back to, I get it, but how are you going to make money, right? I mean, at the end of the day, where's the the way forward for that? Because you can't have the best. UX, you can have, you know, everything can be wonderful and your customers like you, but if you're not making money, you're not going to stay in business.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of those plans are, look, we're just going to aggregate millions of users and then we'll figure it out. Yeah. And, and I think that many of them will figure it out, but I think many of them won't. And so yeah, it's a risky uh,
0: model. I mean, the reality yeah. is it is.
1: And look, I, and I, I think that it's that model, you're either going to have a massive winner or it's going to be a zero. And that's just a hard uh, investment for QED to make. Makes sense. And so like if you if you if you look at you know businesses like Green Sky, which you know went yeah. public, which yeah. is a QED company, you know, David built that business over a decade yeah. of being able to continually kind of grind that out. You know, we're seeing similar things happen within TrueLink, which is another US mm-hmm. one that has a similar model, Lindever, which has a similar model where it's like these businesses are not built overnight, you know, but one, we can see clearly that it if the exact same thing they're doing today, if they can just get to four, five, six X their current scale, it's going to be a great business. And so then we can just focus on helping them with that operational execution risk versus having to worry about a business model that somehow we're going to have to figure out how to monetize later on. And a lot of those are not the
0: sexy right up front, touching the consumer. They're more in the back a little bit, but there's a it's okay. You know, if you build that out and you make it work, as long as you see the growth, there's nothing
1: wrong with that. Exactly. And so it's, my view of the kind of VC landscape is there's a place for everyone, right? Like there's, it's not like one strategy works. You know, this is the strategy that works for QED. So, you know, we're not going to, you know, radically change kind of the approach that, that the firm has. And for me personally, it's been amazing because I've been able to get exposed to so many different types of FinTechs. You know, it's like, I was very laser focused with just lending. I knew everything about lending, but I knew very little about payments or what was going on in wealth management. I mean, I knew the companies were getting funded. Uh, and what's been so amazing at being QED is because the portfolio is so big, you can actually really see, oh, that company, you know, that we now talk about that's doing amazing, Went through some rough patches, you know, and like, you know, you can actually see that like, you know, many of these companies paths to to actually getting uh, to becoming, you know, large businesses with real impact was not straightforward, you know, and I think that that's that, that was heartening because as an entrepreneur, I've never had a straight path. It's always been a really difficult grind in order to figure it out. And so seeing, you know, that that's that's the norm. All right, so no pressure. But these next three questions we ask everybody we
0: interview, so don't suck. Okay, be really good, blow everybody away. I love yeah. When you do that, you can edit that. leave that in. I liked it. Um, so no pressure. You've already like thrown some some really good ones out there. I like. All right. Think about the think about your learnings over each of these companies, right? And reflecting back on that, what you know today, if you could always go back to the five years and talk to yourself or somebody who's in that position.
1: Yeah.
0: What's the one thing you'd look at them and go,
1: do this? So, my big learning, and, and so when I spend time with entrepreneurs, like this is mainly the conversation that we have, is that most people think when it comes to, you know, being able to, to build a company, and especially at the earliest stages, because that's where I spend most of my time, that's where I've been very focused, that it's all about the research I do and the deck I put together. And, I've, and I made this mistake as well. Right. Um, that that is a total fake out, right? Like this isn't a university class where you get a grade, right? And so, you know, don't spend, or spend less than 5% of your time on your deck and the research piece. Spend 95% of your time on the narrative that you are going to tell. Because there's a couple things. One is is that raising money requires you to convince multiple people to invest. There's, There's, you know, you're gonna have to convince somebody like me at, at QED, but now I have to go retell your story to all of my partners. Yeah. And so if you don't have a compelling narrative, the chances of me being able to retell your story is very low, and the chances of me investing is also very low. Likewise, that same story of, why are you working on this problem? You know, what, what was the light bulb moment? You know, what all these kind of pieces of your narrative are also the exact same story that you tell the press when you're recruiting employees, you know when you're hitting tough times, like and and so, you know, really understanding: Do you want to tell this narrative, and do you believe in this narrative and this story that you're trying to weave? That you're willing to say it ten thousand times. So that was a really good answer, by the way.
0: <laughs> it made me laugh because um, it kind of ties back to what Rob and Kath and told me about Cabbage when they first, because you know they came up with the idea of two thousand eight, right? Great timing. Yeah. Um, and they went out and spent like a year looking for investment and got like nothing and um they didn't just get discouraged they figured out how to to pivot pivot's probably not the right word how to refine the narrative right and the story and they got really good at obviously they got really good at it um and you can see that in the company and i love that you've tied back to storytelling it is an art it's not a deck I know you're going go, you can go out and Google and there's a million hits on it, the perfect pitch deck and what you need
1: to include. I like that you said that. Know your story. Yeah, know well, the narrative. And like the deck is, 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 is like when you get a job, you don't get a job because you have a good resume. Right. Like that's a check the box feature, you know? It's yeah. like, and so people kind of get hung up on the wrong things. And like, for example, like when, when I first started talking to investors, I was pitching that we were going to build Orchard to be retail focused. Yeah. And the investors wanted nothing to do with it. It was a bad story, you know. It was a story that was not exciting, you know. And it it took a lot of rejection for me before I realized, oh, wait a minute, like, you know, now we have this other data point and this other person is paying us for consulting. And, like, it seems like this is a big shift in the industry and we're at the beginning of it as it goes from retail funded to institutional funded, guess what, that was a story that everyone was interested in funding. You know, it was like, it's almost night and day. Either you get zero dollars, or you're so oversubscribed, you're telling people no. Yeah. There's nothing in between, you know, as an entrepreneur. And and that always, you know, for me, I realized it's the narrative. So if, if I was to go back five, 10 years, like, I would just be saying, you know, and, and I think it, it goes not just on fundraising. Like, people should think about their careers as like, is this the next story I wanna tell? Is this the next chapter that's exciting? You know, and does it make sense? Because a lot of times, if you're just trying to maximize, let's say the money you make, you end up with a really jumbled, horrible story yeah. in the end. And so long term, that actually hurts you. you know? But for people to actually plan out their careers as like a narrative that they wanna tell about themselves, I think is like a very powerful um, kind of uh, trick. So you've just given great career advice, really good career advice. So flip that. What's the best you've received? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think the best advice that, that I've, that I've received is not to get too comfortable in any role. You know, I, I had great mentors and entrepreneurs who were constantly pushing me. Okay. You have figured out product. Now you have to go do business development. Oh, you figured out business development. Now you have to go figure out sales engineering and implementation. Oh, you figured out this. Like, you know, post kind of live rail, you know, it wasn't it wasn't an easy step to say that I'm gonna go found something, right? If if I hadn't had people pushing saying, no, 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 no. like you've already done those things, like now you have to like take on the next challenge. Yeah, I don't know if I would have done it, you know, and so. That whole piece of, of, for me, it's like the moment your learning curve starts, you know, you typically That's learn flat. a ton at yeah. the beginning and then there's kind of a flattening out that I've realized that the moment that happens, I have to do something else. And it's hard because the moment it flattens is basically when you're finally like, oh, I can actually do this job. Yeah, that's where comfort I'm not, I'm not kicks in, right? I'm not where, faking yeah. it anymore.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't got there yet. But yeah, but it's, it's when you get to that natural point when things are, it becomes routine or simple. And that's when it does. I agree
1: with you. And it, But it's really hard to say, yeah. like, now I'm going to go ruin that. And I'm going to jump into something that I don't know at all. And it's going to be painful and... Yeah. You know I'm gonna have to work hard and like et cetera and so that that kind of theme throughout my career has been really, really helpful um, and, and I guess with that, have mentors. like I feel England. like a lot of people don't England. have. And it doesn't need to be somebody in your industry or something, yeah. just somebody who who cares about the career path that you're following that you can touch base with, you know, once or twice a year to say, hey, this is kind of the update. This is where I'm going. Where do you think I should be going to next? Yeah. Like, you know, somebody who's ideally a couple steps ahead of you. Um, and it's amazing. Like, people want to help. Like, they, like, a lot of times, they're, oh, they're too busy to be a mentor. It's like, it's just not true. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I got some of the, like, most successful former CEOs of banks to invest in Orchard. Yeah, Victor and Pandit, by the way. Yeah, From John CEO. Mack and Tom yeah. and are Amazing people. And it's like, most people who I talk to are like, oh, they're too busy. Like, they are not too busy. If you can find a way to get a quality intro to them from somebody that they trust they love to sit down and hear about the future this is something that they do enjoy you know and it's like when that that kind of theme just kind of goes through the whole thing it's like yes you know People set up these artificial walls to protect their time because time is valuable. But it doesn't mean that they're not interested and that they don't want to actually help in, in a significant way. And so that you know has been kind of a lesson learned in my career. So talking about the future, let's
0: look at QED, right? So what's, what's on the horizon for QED? Where does it go next? Aside from Latin America, obviously, how do you see the company growing?
1: Yeah, so the- FinTech f- focus is gonna stay there? The FinTech focus will stay. Okay. You know, I think it's when you when you look out there, there's a lot of generalist VCs that kind of chase trends. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, you know, um, you know, right now what is super hot is self driving cars. So everyone piles into. Self-driving cars, or you know, augmented reality, or virtual reality, or fintech, or et cetera. Um, but I think that the the differentiator for QED is the fact that they're subject matter experts, and so I, I don't really think that it makes sense to go beyond. Also, fintech is a huge category. Like I talk a lot about how like the term almost doesn't make sense because when you're talking about payments, lending, wealth management, banking services, crypto, like insurance like it's just there's so much meat on on that bone that it's like it's basically impossible to be an expert into all of it and so i think that if you're going to have a vc that is focused just on one category it needs to be a really big category and i think fintech is is one so if i'm a fintech company i want to take a look at qed and talk to y'all what's the best way to find out more i mean the, the best way to get in touch with anyone is to 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 establish a relationship with somebody they trust so i always tell people you mean not
0: linkedin and hey can i have a
1: cup of coffee right behind it (laughs) yeah i mean it's like the 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 best way to get to a vc is to get to one of their portfolio companies because this is somebody that they've already trusted yeah right the best intro you can get to an investor is from somebody who they've already funded the worst intro you can get from an investor is from another investor Because there's a whole (laughs) negative selection. Why didn't you? Why aren't you funding this type type thing? Uh, Or lawyers are horrible intros, or accountants are horrible intros, right? These, These are people who, you know, they have not passed the bar of of the investor of people they trust with their money. The only people who have done that have been current portfolio companies or former portfolio companies. And so then the next person I say, oh, but it, you know, that's not that many people, it must be hard. It's not that hard. There's dozens of companies that have funded. There's like, there, you have dozens of targets you can get to. All, and LinkedIn is amazing at figuring out shared contacts. So it's like, most of my job was like, I'm gonna write you an email that I want you to hit forward on and put in a you know two cents on why I need to be introduced to so and so. And when I get to them, I'm gonna ask them for the next intro. You know, and it's like, if you go four degrees away you can pretty much get to anyone well uh, th- this uh, i'm just flat out folks you got a million gems in here Matt. <laughs> thank
0: you should write a book no you should write a white paper no you should write a book um <laughs> on that but thanks for being on the show um all of you that watched this you should listen a couple times take notes i think laura just filled up her whole notebook for a blog post it looks like um, So, but again thanks for listening as always you can find the show on twitter at fintech insiders as well as on youtube facebook instagram don't forget to subscribe to us so you don't miss any episodes if you have any suggestions or feedback um just reach out to us on twitter or email at podcast at 11fs.com
1: and as usual thanks for listening